All right, good morning once again. It's good to see everybody. This morning, I would like to put our study in Philippians on hold for three or four weeks to present something that God laid on my heart about a week or so ago, something I couldn't stop thinking about. And I actually started writing some notes and found myself in my free time working on some messages. And um, I thought, well, maybe God's got it for some future time. I'll be ready. He said, no, start this Sunday. So he's laid in my heart a series I'm calling The Top Ten Lies of the Devil. The Top Ten Lies of the Devil. These are not an exhaustive list, but I do believe these are some of the devil's favorite lies. He tries to get us to fall for Remember what Jesus said about Satan in John 8, 44. He said he has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul admonished us not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, or in other words, we must not allow ourselves to be deceived, tricked, or to fall for the devil's lies. And the only way you're going to be strong against the devil's lies is to know God's word really well, God's truth. As Jesus said earlier in John 8, if we would take the time to really know the truth, it would set us free from Satan's lies. I just watched a video about a young woman who was raised in a Christian home. She grew up in church, yet she got sucked into the occult. Because in her words, she didn't really know what the Bible said about these things. So she was in the occult for a while, and God delivered her. And now she has got a ministry on YouTube or social media where she shares her experiences, talks about the occult, exposes Satan's lies, and her fo- it's got like 250,000 followers. It's amazing what God is doing. But... She admitted, she said, I didn't know what the Bible said. And she grew up in church. Now, I'm not saying that was her church's fault, although it might have been partly. Some churches get really nervous about talking about the occult. They don't want to go there because why should we talk about darkness? We have the light. That's true. But Jesus talked about the darkness because he is the light. He exposed the darkness. So, Let's look at some of Satan's favorite lies over the next few weeks. Lies that he constantly tries to get people to fall for. Starting with number 10 and counting down to number 1. Number 10 of Satan's favorite lies. Happiness will be yours when you own, achieve, or experience fill in the blank. This is what some have called the when-then philosophy of life. When I get this, then I'll be happy. I don't have to tell you guys, but today we are living in a culture that is empty and desperately trying to fill that emptiness with all kinds of things. Alcohol and drugs, pleasurable experiences like expensive vacations, sexual encounters, material possessions, that's a big one. Romance, internet romance and adultery have hit epidemic proportions in our nation. And also things like fame, success, and so on. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman 
by the well of Sychar in John 4. He said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Now, of course, he was talking about physical, literal water to start that little conversation with this woman. But he quickly turned water into a metaphor for whatever people are thirsting for in their lives. I want you to understand something. This is an extremely, comes out of John 4, an extremely profound statement spoken by the one who made us. He knows how we tick. He knows what's going to make us happy. He knows what's going to satisfy us. It's a statement that should be written over every desire and ambition of your life. What is it that you think will bring you satisfaction and happiness, other than Jesus, of course? What is it that you are pressing towards? What are the goals that you hope to achieve? What are you striving for in life, thinking, oh, if only I could have this or that, or him or her, I'd be happy. I'd never ask or I wouldn't want for anything else my entire life. But listen, Jesus, again, the one who made you, is telling you that whatever it is right over the top of it, drink of this, fill in the blank, and you will thirst again. Guys, nothing this world has to offer in the way of material possessions, accomplishments, successes, or even human relationships will ever satisfy that deep longing in your soul the way a relationship with Jesus will satisfy you. And that's because God created us with a God-shaped void in our hearts. You can work feverishly to stuff everything but Jesus into it, and you'll never be satisfied. As Jesus went on to say in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst again. Now he's talking about the gospel, but ultimately himself. He's the living water. You fill your heart, your void in your heart with Jesus, you will never thirst again. I can attest to that. I'm sure many of you can too. Before I got saved, I pursued a lot of things that I thought was going to make me happy. None of them ever did, not ultimately, until I came to Christ. And it's like David said in Psalm 23, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. The only time a sheep will lie down in a green pasture is if it's what? Satisfied. Satisfied. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. And yet, there is always going to be the when-then person. <laughs> Again, when I get that, then I will be happy, then I will be satisfied. You know, my pastor, Chuck Smith, came from a family that contained several rich relatives that didn't know the Lord, and I remember him saying one time that they were some of the most miserable and unhappy people he knew. You see, guys, rich folks have it all. They've done it all. They really have nothing left to experience or look forward to. They have maxed out life and nothing has satisfied them or made them happy. Jesus is here telling us that that is one of the biggest lies that Satan has ever deceived people into believing. It's what Paul the Apostle called the deceitfulness of riches. 
embodied perfectly in the statement of John D. Rockefeller, who many years ago was a very wealthy man. He was a multimillionaire at a time when millions, uh, when a million dollars was a lot of money. Today, he would be a multi-billionaire, no doubt. But he kept working 18 hours a day. And at one point, a reporter asked him, Mr. Rockefeller, you're a multimillionaire, yet you still work 18 hours a day to make more money. How much money is enough? To which he classically replied, just a little more. That's the deceitfulness of riches. Money hasn't made me happy yet, but a little more will. If you still doubt what I'm saying, let's look at King Solomon for a minute, who was the richest man in the world in his day. I mean, here's a man who had everything this world had to offer. He had prestige and power, as well as riches and fame more than, any, uh, more than anyone who has ever lived. He dined in the finest food, wore the finest clothes, and lived in the finest palace. He had thousands of servants to attend to his every need, and hundreds of wives and concubines so that his pleasure knew no bounds. He was the wisest man who ever lived apart from Jesus, of course, so much so that people came from all over the known world just to sit at his feet and hear his wisdom. I mean, Solomon had it all. If outward circumstances truly make a person happy, then Solomon would have been the happiest man on the face of the earth. And yet, as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, which he wrote, over and over again, he said, Vanity, vanity, everything is emptiness and vanity. And that is because, as Jesus said, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, or as the Living Translation puts, puts it, a person's life is not measured by how much you own. And we would do well to listen to Jesus, of course. Again, he's the one who made us. He's the one who, who knows what will make us happy. And he is basically saying, guys, don't miss this. He's basically saying that it's pure foolishness to think that we can fill up the void in our soul with the junk of this world. And yet how many people are feverishly trying to do that very thing? This is exactly the lie that Satan has deceived so many with, that life does consist in the abundance of the things you possess. So work like crazy to gain more and more stuff because only then when you've gained enough material things will you really be happy and satisfied. And so people work themselves to death, literally heart attacks, strokes, or they're so depressed they drink themselves to death. The very thing Satan wants, at that point now he's crystallized their eternity. They're never going to see God. They'll live in darkness for all eternity. So this is number 10 on the list of Satan's favorite lies. Number 9, God can't exist because there's so much evil and suffering in the world. This is the top argument of the atheist, to prove that a good God doesn't exist, or of the skeptic to prove he exists but can't be a good and loving God, or if he does exist and he is a good and loving God, he can't be all-powerful, because an all-good, all-powerful God wouldn't let evil exist in the world. Now, this has stumbled a lot of Christians who have not studied this topic well enough 
to give an answer to somebody who hits him with this argument. There's a lot of Christians who get stumbled. Because for those of us Christians who do believe in the existence of an all-good, all-loving, and all-powerful God, the inevitable question that comes to mind is, if God exists, and if he's all-loving, in other words, he really cares about people, and if he's all-powerful, he can do anything he wants to do, then why doesn't he put a stop to all the evil and suffering in the world? And guys, this, in fact, is the single greatest obstacle. Now, surveys have been taken, studies have been done. This is, in fact, the single greatest obstacle for spiritual seekers to overcome in their quest to believe in the God of the Bible. In a George Barna poll, a cross-section of adults were asked the question, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? The top response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? And again, for the atheist and skeptic, they believe this is an airtight argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. Here's the argument they present. If God is all-good so that he would eliminate evil, and if he's all-powerful so that he could eliminate evil, yet evil is not eliminated, Therefore, an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. Airtight case. Touchdown, spike the ball in the end zone, conversation done. You Christians have no response to that. Well, the problem with that argument is that it's built on a faulty assumption that just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet, it never will be. You see, if the atheist was honest, many of them aren't, but if he was honest and phrased the argument correctly, it wouldn't prove his point. In other words, if he said, if there is an all-good God who would eliminate evil and an all-powerful God who could eliminate evil, and since he hasn't yet eliminated evil, he can't exist, well, that would be easy to refute, right? As Christians, we would answer simply, just because evil hasn't been eliminated yet doesn't mean it won't be eliminated someday. Look, if the atheist could say, with all certainty, if God is an all-God, excuse me, if God is all-good, he would eliminate evil. If he is all-powerful, he could eliminate evil. Evil has not yet been eliminated, and it never will be. Therefore, no such God exists now. He's got a good argument against the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God. The problem with that is anyone who makes a statement like that would have to know the future perfectly. They would have to know that evil would never be eliminated from the earth. Now, we don't have to guess. We have a revelation from God. It's called the Book of Revelation. And it tells us that one day God will settle all accounts and eliminate all evil. Criticizing God for not doing it right now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. The story is not done. The story is not done. Now, at this point, some would say, yes, but evil is bad. If God is good, why doesn't he protect us from it? First of all, let me just say again, whatever evil is in the world came through man. Whatever evil there is in the world, it came through man. You remember after every day of creation, Genesis 1, 
first day, second day, third day, all the way through the sixth day, at, at the end of every day, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good, right? At the end of the sixth day, he stepped back from the canvas of, of his creation and said, and God declared, it's all good. God made a good creation. Chapter 3, it crashed and burned. How? Why? Because man introduced sin into the world. So this is not the world God originally created us to live in. This is a world that's a product of man's rebellion. But understand, now that man has exercised his free will in rebellion against God and has brought all these negative consequences upon the human race, God is not against using them for his purposes. This is what we wanted. This is what we chose. And God, not wanting to violate our free will, said, okay, then I will use what man has chosen, and I will use it for my glory. And, and this is the very important thing. God uses pain now to bring about ultimate good. Look, some people think that pain in the world is an expression of God's hatred for us. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Just like God created the physical body to feel pain. Why did he do that? Because pain tells us something is wrong. Pain drives us to a physician for help. If you had a serious disease and there was nothing that warned you, there was no pain, you would go on until this thing took your life. It's the pain that causes you to say, I need to see a doctor. Something isn't right. That's physical pain. But God has allowed emotional pain as well. We live in a fallen world. And when people feel emotional pain, emptiness, fear, anxiety, uh, unfulfillment, lack of hope, desperation, these are all emotional pain that God is allowing that hopefully will drive us to the great physician for healing. And that healing comes by accepting Christ as our Savior. C.S. Lewis said it. God whispers in our pleasure, but shouts in our pain. This is a world that's gone on for 6,000 years in rebellion against God. People's hearts have gotten very hard, their ears very dull. So yeah, God is ramping up the, the pain, allowing it to go more and more rampant, because he's shouting to people, come to me for salvation. If you thirst and are weary, heavy laden, come to me, I'll give you rest. The great physician is using pain to draw sinners to himself. As I've said before, let me say it again. Would you rather experience a little pain on earth now that will bring you to Christ or have a wonderful life now without any problems or pain and spend eternity in hell? I think we would all agree. A little pain now, whatever form it takes, if it brings a person to Christ, it's worth it. Just like a little pain in a surgery, not something you look forward to, but if the tumor is removed, your health is restored, that pain is worth it, right? But then God also uses pain, adversity, suffering in the lives of his people to draw us closer to Jesus, to deepen our walk with him in a way that nothing else could. We call it sanctification. Sanctification. You know, theologian and author Norm Geisler said, and I quote, 
look, this is not the best of all possible worlds, what we're living with. But this is not the world God wanted for us. It's the world we've chosen. Okay, God's working with it. This is not the best of all possible worlds, but I think it's the best of all possible ways to get to the best of all possible worlds. A true believer is something like tea. <laughs> Their real strength comes out in hot water. God permits suffering to produce the greatest virtues in us. Job said, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold, end quote. And of course, this idea is expressed throughout the pages of Scripture um, in type and in you know, truth. Um, give you a couple of Verse, a couple of passages, Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, endurance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. James put it this way in James 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. <laughs> only a spirit-filled Christian would even say that. Because you have a lot of carnal Christians that think all suffering adversity is from the devil. Rebuke it. That's not of God. Um, I'm sorry, my Bible says often it could be from God. But counter all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. Nothing spiritual. Nothing that God wants to give you to help you grow and be all that you can be for Jesus Christ on this earth. I like what one author said about this. He said, and I quote, God allows pain to bring about the greater good. Every athlete, especially an Olympic athlete, goes through incredible pain and suffering in training. Why? For the joy of victory. If victory wasn't greater than the suffering it takes to get there, no one, would, no one would ever endure it. So every athlete endures pain to bring about the greater good, end quote. And the same is true in the Christian life. God allows pain and suffering because it brings about the greatest good. It develops us, matures us, and grows us in a way nothing else can. The Arabs have a saying, all sunshine makes a desert. We need some storms in our lives. It draws us closer to God and it helps us to grow in understanding how much he does love us because he sees us through. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I will fear no evil because you're with me. You're not going to know he's really with you unless you're walking through that valley. But secondly, for the people who can't understand why, why, even if man did mess up this world, why God doesn't just step in and fix it, and make it problem-free again. Well, they're harboring under a faulty assumption, and that is that the absence of all suffering would be the greatest good for mankind. Now, we've just talked about it. We've just really answered it. But let me put it another way. There's a lot of people who feel that a God of love would never or could never use suffering, adversity, or pain for our good. And we've really kind of answered the question, but let me ask it again. Is it possible that God could use suffering and tragedy to teach us important lessons that help us grow as believers while drawing us to God in a way that nothing else would? Can God use for good what Satan intended for evil? And of course, the answer is yes. 
And we don't have to just guess that, well, maybe yes, no. It's definitely yes because he's already proven it to us. What do I mean? Well, he's already given us the ultimate example of this truth. He's already shown it to us. God has already demonstrated how the very worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world ended up to be the very best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And I'm talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung on that cross, his disciples thought the worst thing that could ever have happened has happened. Our Messiah is dead. Three days later, when he stepped from that tomb alive, they realized that what they thought was the worst thing that could ever happen turned out to be the best thing that could ever happen. Jesus died for our sins, rose again, and now he's offering eternal life to all who would believe in him. When it comes to suffering on account of sin, God took his own medicine. I read this many years ago when I was a new Christian, when I was wrestling with some of these issues. Didn't know how to answer people. And I wanted to study and to find out what other people had said about this topic. And I came across a, a, a author, pastor, I forgot what he was. He wrote in a little track. He says, you know, in case you're one of those people that is down on God because he talks about how good it is that we suffer while he sits up in his ivory tower, heaven, and never experiences any. And the author said, when it comes to suffering on account of sin, God took his own medicine by becoming one of us, took our sins upon himself, and suffered more than any of us ever would if we lived a million lifetimes. And then he finished with this. He said, how could you not love this being who went the extra mile, who practiced more than he preached, who entered into our world, who suffered our pains, who offers himself to us in the midst of our sorrows? What more could he do? End quote. All right, let's do one more. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. And please don't come to me and say, you know, I think number six should have been number five. <laughs> it's not an exact science, folks. All right? Cut me a little break here. Number eight on our countdown of the top ten lies Satan likes to get us with. Number eight, there is no absolute truth. Whatever a person believes is their truth. Now, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, what is truth? But in a sincere way, not like Pilate did, in a cynical way. You know, when Jesus said, I have come to bear witness of the truth, Pilate sneered at him and said, what is truth? And walked away. That was not a sincere question. That was a, a, a slam against Jesus, right? But I, we need to ask as Christians, what is truth? Now, we know basically, but let me kind of run through some things because you may have to articulate a little bit when you talk to somebody. We give these quick answers, but there are some people who are deeper thinkers. They want to know a little bit more. So let me give you a little bit. We need to ask ourselves, what is truth? You know, many scholars, academics, and philosophers over the centuries have relegated the concept of truth to the realm of the, of the abstract or the theoretical. And because so many secular intellectuals reject the concept of truth as an absolute reality, in other words, something that is real, tangible, 
and knowable, they concluded as merely a subjective concept, in other words, something based on personal feelings and or experiences. And so they claim truth isn't absolute, it's relative. In other words, truth is whatever you want it to be. Like, if you were born a genetic biological male or a biological female, but you decide your truth is that you're really the opposite gender, that's absolutely fine. You see how that's being bought into in our culture today? That is a proof truth is no longer objective, absolute. It's now totally subjective and relative. Now, of course, this is preparing the world for the ultimate lie of the devil. It's not going to make the top ten list because these are personal lies. He directs at us personally. The big one, he will feed the world globally. We've talked about it. You can go back John chapter 8, uh, around verse 44, we spent a lot of time talking about the ultimate lie the devil is going to cast upon the human race, and that is that you can become a god. There is no ultimate death, reincarnation. You just keep coming back, getting recycled until you get this thing right. You finally live the perfect life, and you ascend to godhood. All of this is laying the groundwork for that ultimate lie. The lie that started in the Garden of Eden introduced by the devil as the father of lies into the human race. That lie was in its embryonic state in the Garden of Eden that has had 6,000 years to grow and develop. And it's going to be the very same lie the devil's going to hit us with through the Antichrist when he appears that man can become a god. This is all laying the groundwork. You have to do it away with absolute truth and, and get people to embrace subjective, relative truth. In other words, whatever they think is truth, if they're going to buy into this ultimate lie. But let me just say this. We have so many today claiming that truth isn't absolute, it's relative. Uh, or in other words, truth is simply whatever you want it to be. But without objective, absolute truth, people can't live. Societies break down and life becomes impossible. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that in a second. But let me just say this. Without objective, absolute truth, there can be no righteous standard of morality and therefore no righteous laws governing a society, both of which are based on the objective, absolute standard of right and wrong that we call truth. In our culture today, many have abandoned the idea of moral absolutes, again, in favor of moral relativism. You hear people saying things like, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. If it works for you and feels good, it's fine, it's okay. And because so many want to do whatever seems right in their own eyes without anyone opposing or judging them, they naturally don't want to oppose or judge the way anyone else is living either. And therefore their mindset is, you accept me and I'll accept you. And that has become the general attitude of our age. And so we hear a lot today in our society about tolerance, inclusiveness, and love which the world defines as basically accepting whatever people want to do and however they want to live. Everything's fine. There's no right and wrong. You want to be that way, you go ahead and be that way. You want to live that way, you go ahead. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Let's support each other and celebrate one another. And if we as Christians come along and speak out against immorality and sin, they label us judgmental and bigoted, self-righteous and narrow-minded, all based on their belief that there is no such thing as absolute truth 
and therefore no such thing as sin. But you see, John the Apostle said in 1 John 1, 8, that those who say we have no sin are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. You might be thinking, and of course you would be thinking this because you're rational people. Irrational people don't think this way because in their convoluted thinking, bad is good, good is bad, up is down, down is up, everything's turned upside down. But for those of you who are rational in your thinking, Christians, you might be sitting there thinking, how is it possible that anyone could believe that they've never sinned? It's possible if they change the rules or the standards by which certain behaviors are called sin in the first place. And so in our culture today, many have abandoned the idea, again, of moral absolutes in favor of moral relativism. They believe there is no moral absolutes. In other words, no absolute standards of right and wrong. And the truth is whatever they say it is. Now listen to me, because the devil is very clever. He will feed a lie that really isn't the main thing he's after. But when you back it up a few steps, it will gain him the very thing he wants. Of course, moral absolutes come from God, who is called in the Bible the supreme lawgiver and righteous judge of all the earth. So those who want to get rid of God's laws, guess what? They have to get rid of God himself. Hence the rise of neo-atheism. More young people are atheists today than ever before in America's history. Now, once they get rid of God, once they embrace the belief he doesn't exist, well, then neither do his commandments exist, which causes them to say, I have not sinned because sin doesn't exist. You see, if there's no absolute standard of right and wrong, then sin is impossible because sin, listen, is a violation of God's laws, which don't exist if he doesn't exist. Again, these people don't believe that there is such a thing as sin, and they would tell you, I don't sin, that's your truth. That's not my truth. When I have sex outside of marriage or lie to get that position or engage in homosexual activity or kill babies in the womb, it's not sin because my truth says it's perfectly right for me to do so. Well then, from that logic and reasoning, Hitler wasn't a murdering monster. He was just living according to his truth. And how can you judge him? Because if there's no ultimate right and wrong, and we're all just doing whatever we feel is right in our own hearts, didn't Hitler think he was doing what was right? Well, sure he did. His truth was to destroy all the weak in society, Jews starting with them and moving off from there, because he wanted to get rid of the weak so that the strong could thrive, the Aryan nation. And yet even people that embrace this philosophy, when they've been asked, well, what about Hitler? Hitler wasn't wrong? Hitler wasn't evil? Oh, well, yeah, Hitler was. Because they know innately God has written his laws in our hearts and we could try to suppress the truth. We can try to get around the truth. But here's the bottom line. It's there. And we all know instinctively, innately, that there are some things that are flat out evil and wrong. What Hitler did was flat out evil and wrong. And you can try to, to with you know, all this philosophy and people trying to, to, to be sound so intellectual in, the, in their desire to do away with God... But that gnawing reality remains. Hitler was an evil monster. 
Because we all know there are some things that are evil and some things that are not evil. And that's why I say, guys, without moral absolutes, people can't live, societies break down, and life becomes impossible. If everyone really did embrace this philosophy, you would have utter chaos. There'd be murders. Well, there's murders in the streets now. But it would be much worse. And you wouldn't be able to hold anybody accountable. You know, more cops, no more laws, because laws don't matter. It's whatever you feel in your heart is the right thing to do. Well, I don't know. I remember in the book of Judges that six or seven times, very black period in Israel's history, it says because there was no king in Israel, <laughs> no king, no lawgiver, no righteous judge, everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. We have entered into that period again in America. And this is why God has given us his word to build our lives upon, which is really the antidote to man's <laughs> relativistic moral insanity. You all know it. You don't have to turn to it. Psalm 19, wonderful psalm about the word of God. Yes, also Psalm 119, but Psalm 19, also very good. I'll just read you uh, verses 8 and 9. It's talking about the word of God, which David uh, relates in different, using different terms. The statutes of the Lord, the word of God. Statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So in conclusion, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Yes, of course. It's called the Word of God, the Bible. On the night before his crucifixion, as Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said in verse 17, Father, sanctify my disciples according to your truth. Your Word is truth. Guys, understand that God's Word cannot be separated from God himself. There are those who want to study truth apart from God. That's ridiculous. Because they're atheists or I heard a lot of atheists say that they really are truth seekers and they really are moral people. You're kidding yourself. You cannot separate truth and morality from God himself. But understand that God's word cannot be separated from God himself. God is truth and truth is God who expressed himself in the pages of the Bible, his holy word. In other words, what God calls truth is an expression and an extension of himself, something that emanates from him, from his nature, even as Jesus said, who is God, of course. He said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Trying to understand truth without God is like trying to understand sunlight without the sun. And just as trying to understand sunlight would be impossible without focusing on the sun as its source, so to understanding truth is impossible without starting with and focusing on God as its source. As Christians, we read the Word of God. Why do we read the Word of God? We want to know God's truth. But when you read the Word of God, understand, the real goal is to know the God of the Word. We read the Word of God to know the God of the Word because they are connected, right? Guys, absolute truth exists. We know that. That's a given. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, I think we've already answered that. 
But let me just say this. It matters because God's absolute truth allows us to live in a world of lies and not be deceived and destroyed by them. Remember what Jesus said in John 8. We quoted it earlier, verses 31 and 32. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, free from Satan's lies. God's truth becomes a sure foundation that we can build our lives upon, as opposed to the shifting sand of man's relativistic, quote-unquote, truth, which is nothing more than Satan's lies. Guys, God's absolute truth is essential for life, even as Jesus said, the words I speak to you, said this in John 6, the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Guys, Jesus also said the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And as such, he has filled this world with disinformation. That's a kind of a buzzword today, right? Disinformation. Let's just call it what it is. It's flat out Satan's lies. The devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And as such, he has filled this world with his, with his lies that if embraced, will steal a person's life now and destroy their soul in hell forever. The sad reality is many people are frantically looking for truth. I believe this. There's a lot of folks out there who are frantically looking for truth. My mother was one of them many years ago. We grew up in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church did teach us a lot of right things about God. But when she went on a spiritual quest to find God, she started studying astrology and hypnosis and handwriting analysis and all kinds of goofy things. Until one day, she came to her senses, God was working, and she picked up a Bible. It's like the movie Wizard of Oz. She clicked her heels three times and went home. She's on this weird quest all the while, she had the power to know the truth. It was right in front of her, but she didn't open up the Bible. And that's when she got saved. And that's when she shared with her children, and we got saved. A lot of folks out there who are truth seekers, and yet, tragically, they don't or won't come to the Bible for the answers on how to live their lives. Again, God's word is the only light in a world of darkness, the only truth in a world full of Satan's lies. Believe it, and you'll be saved and live a blessed life. Reject it, and you will live a life of chaos and confusion, which ultimately will result in eternal separation from God forever in hell. So to recap quickly, we're done. The first three of Satan's top ten lies that he constantly feeds and deceives the human race with are, first of all, happiness will be yours when you own, achieve, or experience fill-in-the-blank. It's all external. Happiness, you'll know happiness when you get that new car, when you go on that extravagant vacation, when you get married or get divorced, wherever you're coming from. Uh, some people think that getting divorced is going to lead to ultimate happiness. I don't know. I'm not going there. But whatever it is, I get my degree, I, my career takes off, because your life consists in all the stuff you don't have yet but need to acquire to be happy. It's the lie of the devil, the deceitfulness of riches. 
Why number nine, can't, God can't exist because there is so much evil and suffering in the world. Again, this is not the world God created us to live in. This is a product of man's rebellion. And because man has chosen this, God allowing man to exercise his free will, God is using our pain to bring us to Jesus. The fact that he allows pain doesn't prove he hates us. He proves how much he loves us. Because he wants us to come to him and be saved. He wants us to, to allow the pain to drive us to our knees, that we cry out to him, God, I, this, I've been the master of my life for all these years, and there's been nothing but one heartache after another. Please, Jesus, come into my heart and become my master. And number eight, there is no absolute truth. Whatever a person believes is their truth. Again, many people think that truth is like silly putty. It, I can make it, sh shape it, form it into whatever I want it to be. It's whatever I say it is, which, of course, do does away with, uh, with sin. And if you do away with sin, you do away with conviction because the Holy Spirit convicts us based on our sin. You remove sin, the reality of sin, the Holy Spirit can no longer con convict your heart. I'm not saying... He can't do something to get a hold of you. He's God. But think about that, right? It's the consequences that drive us to God. Knowing that we have violated his holy standard, his righteous commandments. So these are three of Satan's favorite lies that he feeds the human race in an effort to keep people away from God. Come back next week and we'll look at two or three more. Father, we thank you that in a world of lies, you have given us your truth, and primarily that truth became flesh and dwelt among us for 33 years and died on the cross that we all might know truth and that we might live forever in your kingdom, a truth we embrace and look forward to seeing fulfilled. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in this important topic we give it to you we ask you to bless these things in jesus precious name amen